So, first two chapters of, of Luke are about, for the most part, the birth of Jesus, which is pretty good in terms of the fall because starting today, we're kind of heading into Advent season and into Christmas, which is, is perfect. But we're going to start Advent, if you will, a little bit early in terms of theme um, because Luke chapter 1 and 2 has to do with Jesus in his early days. Now, some of the, some of the things that I, I love about Luke, just to... Um, let you know. And by the way, any gospel is good because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four of them. Really, they lay out for us the life of Jesus. Um, All of the other books in the New Testament, for the most part, they either reflect on or apply what Jesus did, but they really don't present the life of Christ. But the gospels do. So you get into Luke and we get to, again, see Jesus acting and speaking and and we get to follow him on his journey. And and Luke is rather dramatic in the way that that he tells the story of of Christ. Um, But there are particular themes of Luke that I find, again, encouraging or attractive. Um, Luke reminds us in the way he tells the story of Jesus how dangerous riches are. He reminds us that God has a heart for the lowly, the outcast, and the poor. Um, Luke has a way of, of, of showing us Jesus is servant of all. Um, that, that Luke is also one of those gospels that, that um, emphasizes the work of the Spirit, both in Jesus' life and in the life of his followers. Uh, that Luke also pays special attention to the prayer life of Jesus. That is, it emphasizes prayer more than some of the other gospels. Um, and it's a, it's a book about joy. Um, as one commentator wrote, he said, you know, there are mo- more joy words in the Gospel of Luke than in any other New Testament book. I mean, you can hear, even from the opening pages, there's this like burst of prophetic joy and, and a proclamation and glory to God on the mouth of both angels and humans. It's like so there's a sense of a jubilant joy over the birth of and the ministry of Jesus. And that's, that's part of it, is the joy of Christ and one of the marks of, of Luke. But it's also, I think, in my opinion, um, in my reading of it, especially the opening parts, um, it is appropriate for our time in which people are skeptical. Um, we live in what some have called the age of skepticism. That's, that means doubt, uncertainty, disbelief. Not about everything, but in particular with regards to the claim and the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. That is really where skepticism aims its doubt and disbelief, is at the claims of, of Christianity. Now, it's interesting to me, and let me just follow my thought here, how skepticism itself, that is doubt or disbelief or uncertainty about Christ, what he said, who he was, who he is, and what he did, is the skepticism is so inconsistent. As most Americans you talk to, most people you talk to, next door neighbors, whoever, in a grocery store, they have no problem believing that Alexander the Great ruled the world and spread Greek culture all over the place. No problem whatsoever. They have no problem accepting the fact that an ancient philosopher by the name of Plato wrote the Apology or um, the Republic. Most people have absolutely no skeptical doubts or disbeliefs that George Washington led the troops into Valley Forge. Just like, no problem there, right? Uh, Most Americans don't have a problem with the fact that SEAL Team 6 took down Osama bin Laden, though nobody's seen his body. At least we haven't. 
No problem there. No skepticism, no uncertainty. It's just accept it. But when it comes to Christianity, did Jesus live? Did he teach what he taught? What did he say about himself? What did he do? All of a sudden then, it's like people kind of retreat. I'm not talking about Christians per se, although it seeps into the church. All of a sudden now, it's kind of like you hide behind a wall of skepticism. It's like, ah, well, that's your faith, and I have a different faith. And all of a sudden, there's this wall of skepticism, despite the fact that what we believe is based upon historical records and eyewitness accounts. So in one sense, people can be unskeptical, and in another sense, people get completely skeptical of Christianity. So, so what gives? What's, what's the difference? Why? I think one, one major reason, maybe not the only reason, is because of what's at stake in believing the truth. That is to say, there, there's, there's, there really isn't all that much of an impact on your life or my life if you believe Alexander the Great ever lived. Eh, okay, he did. No big deal. Uh, SEAL Team 6, maybe that's a little bit bigger deal because he was an enemy of the United States, and so there may be some personal impact there. But for the most part, you could get along well without believing that. It's not a, it's not a truth that has a, a huge impact on your life, right? It's not hard to believe those truths. There's a different kind of truth that is a game changer. It's personally impacting. Like when a doctor sits across from you as a patient and says, listen, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're in fourth stage pancreatic cancer. You have three to six months to live if you're treated. All of a sudden, now that fact, that truth that is based upon evidence of blood work and so forth, all of a sudden it's massive. It's like, really? It's, it's, there's a huge impact to one's personal life over that truth. Well, in the same way, the, like the truth of Christianity is not one of those truths that is a low-impact truth. If Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did and what the New Testament declares he did and what the Old Testament prof- prophesied that he would do, well, then it's a game-changer. It's a world-changing truth because according to the New Testament, Jesus is the key to everything. He's the key to the future of this planet He's the key to the future of its people. He's the key between death and life and corruption and judgment, redemption, joy, hope. I mean, all of those things center themselves on the truth of who Jesus is. So that is a game-changing, world-changing truth that we believe. That's why people retreat, in my opinion, behind a wall of skepticism, because they know If you give in to what the New Testament says, the whole game changes. Now, what does that have to do with Luke? Well, Luke 1, 1 through 4, which is Luke's introduction. And by the way, um, there's nowhere in the book of Luke that says Luke wrote it. But tradition going back to the second century basically says Luke wrote it. And it's, it's fairly persuasive. A traveling companion of Paul, probably a Gentile, and someone who by the way in which he writes, was classically trained. That's all I have to say about the author. But Luke 1, 1 through 4, he lays out his introduction to his whole book. He lays out the introduction to his whole book in which he's going to tell us about the subject of his gospel, the reliability of his gospel, and the purpose of his gospel. All in these three 
these four verses, all right? The subject, the reliability, and the purpose of his gospel. Let me read these four verses. You can follow along behind me if it's not too dim. This is what his opening words, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, or for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who he is. His name means friend of God or lover of God. Um, is lost to us in history. Verse 4, this is the purpose, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's the opening introduction. The rest of it's the stories. He tells us about the subject of this gospel in the first verse. That is, he's going to tell us about what God has accomplished or fulfilled in Christ. That's the substance of his gospel. Verse 1, talks about him, his, uh, those who have compiled narratives um, in the past of things that have been accomplished among us. Things that have been accomplished among us that we have seen or experienced in this community. That is, since his whole gospel traces Jesus from pre-birth announcements all the way to post-resurrection, with the passion, that is his death and resurrection, kind of front and center, uh, the climactic moment of why he came, the whole gospel is about what God has accomplished through Christ. But it is indeed what God has accomplished. In fact, your, your translation may say, if you have an NAS or a NRS or an ASV, different English translations, that word accomplished is actually translated fulfilled. And that, that's the sense of it, literally is fulfilled. This is what God has fulfilled among us. Listen, we have, we have a hard time waiting a half hour for something, right? You want to go through the express line because you don't want to wait five minutes in a, you know, for your groceries. But the people of God have waited for thousands and thousands of years in hope, in longing, for the day in which the great promises, the great prophetic hopes that God would finally and fully, once for all, redeem his people actually come to fruition. He longed for it for thousands of years. And what Luke is saying is that that time had come. God has fulfilled those redemptive, saving longings that, that people, the people of God, have longed for and waited for for so long. It's here it's, he's done it in, 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 in the person of his son, in, in Christ Jesus, in his death and resurrection. Once for all, that's, that's the substance and the subject. It's what God has done, which explains why there's so much praise in the opening chapters. It's like people recognize that this is, a, this is an unparalleled, unprecedented work of God. I, it's as if... Luke describes God storming onto the scene of human history to save it. And that's really kind of an accurate picture. And we're told from history that there are these 400 plus or minus dark years between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. Between Malachi and Matthew, that gap is roughly 400 years in which heaven was silent. There was no prophetic word that was given. Dark times. And then all of a sudden... Luke records, now there's, now there's messengers from the throne room, and there's multiple messages from the throne room. Something astounding is happening. 
And you get this praise and worship of, of Yahweh, of God, bursting forth. So you can kind of get a sense, both in the terms of angels and humans. And this is just to give you a sense that this is, everything's like, like, a, like a, a reverse waterfall, just going up to the Lord for what he is doing. Mary, you know, bursts forth in what they call the Magnificat, or her song, a spirit-inspired song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, in Zechariah, in chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his spirit. They see what's going on. The day has finally dawned. Angels are, are singing, you know, glory to God in the highest. I know it's Chris, that's Christmas, but we can read these verses any time of year. Simeon. He blessed God as he held Christ in his hands, the, the Christ child. Anna began to give thanks. So there's just, just this explosion of joyful praise because the time has finally come. And as I said, it's unprecedented. This kind of euphoric, spontaneous Worship of God did not accompany the birth of Noah, the birth of Abraham, the birth of Isaac, the birth of Moses, or the birth of David, but it did with the birth of the Son of God, because with him, everything was going to change. Everything is going to change. The substance of what he's going to tell us is the amazing, once for all, um, unparalleled, redemptive moment in, in human history. That's, that's, that's what's come. That's what he's going to talk about. That's the substance of his gospel. Now, most of us know that, but I just want us to get this sense of, man, this is like Luke's introducing something massive, and it all centers in Jesus. The reliability of Luke, that is... Just to summarize, many sources, eyewitness accounts, and exhaustive research. You look at these underlying portions, you realize he's, he's laying a firm foundation for the fact that what he's about to tell us is reliable history. In one sense, it's reliable, infallibly so, because it was inspired and put into the scripture. But even in his introduction, he's saying, listen, there's actually reasons to believe that this gospel is true, historically. He starts off, as many, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. That is, others have before me, Luke say, speaking, there others before me have, have written stories about what Christ has done. Now, at very least, we have Matthew, Mark, and John. But there may have been others, uninspired, but who told or wrote stories about the Christ and what he did, all referring to the same basic events of his death and his resurrection. Certainly, there were verbal stories that went around, people who had witnessed firsthand and telling stories over the campfires or telling stories in church because they saw him. The idea being there were a, a number of accounts of the same thing. And when there are multiple accounts of the same thing, that kind of, if you will, bolsters the fact that it happened. When the New York Times and when the L.A. Times and the, and the Washington Post all refer to an event that happens in a particular time and space, well, then the probability is it actually happened because there's multiple sources witnessing to it. That's layer one. And he doesn't disparage the other accounts. He's just saying that others have written things. And those writings, second underlined section, are from the hand of eyewitnesses. People who have seen with their own eyes 
Jesus' life. They saw him die. They saw him rise again, and they touched him. Eyewitnesses. Still, even to this day, in our modern court system, eyewitness accounts are some of the strongest evidence of guilt or innocence. That's why they have the witness protection program, right? Because you know, um, if there's a white witness, eyewitness out there, and they witnessed you murdering somebody, the mo- they are going to damage your defense case. You got to off the eyewitnesses because they're so credible, right? Listen, this. Luke's saying, listen, what I'm, what I'm telling you, people saw with their own eyes eyewitness testimony that would hold up in a court of law. They saw it. And then third, there's his process. Apparently he wasn't an eyewitness, but he had access to the eyewitnesses. Verse 3, he says, having followed all things closely, followed, or another good way of translating that is investigated or researched, all things closely for some time. So he spent some enormous amounts of time tracking these things down. He endeavors to write an orderly account for us. So he did the interviews. He, he did the historical research. That's what he's saying. I don't think it's preposterous to think that he sat down with, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his Cambridge, you know, Notepad and quill, and didn't really have those back then, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, all right, Mary, tell me, tell me what happened when Jesus was born. And the reason I don't think it's beyond speculation or beyond possibility is because he includes things in his second chapter that only she would know. So what was it like? Well, it was, it was, it was actually quite awkward, you know? So, so there's Joseph and I, I just gave birth. It was a you know, hard experience, that's all birth. Experiences are, unless you have an epidural, which they didn't have back then. And then all of a sudden, there was this rustling outside. And, and, and at first, we were kind of fearful, like, like, who's coming in on this intimate moment between me and Joseph and this new baby? And would you know what? These strange faces came to the door. And, and at first, we were scared, but then realized they're shepherds. Like, what are shepherds doing here? An awkward moment. And then they realized that they received a message, like a message in a, in a rather supernatural way. And they said, come. It's like, Really? So I had to treasure those things up in my heart. That is, he did the research. He did the interviews. He did those. That's what he's saying, okay? So you layer this together. There have been a number of accounts. There were eyewitness accounts. And then I've done my research carefully so that what I'm about to write to you is reliable. In other words, it actually happened. You realize that's the point. We're not talking about myth or fiction. He's introducing this as real, bona fide, and supported history, a record, to be believed. Some would say, yeah, but those are all Christian writers. Of course they're writing that. I mean, is there maybe some writing outside of the Christian community that would say, yeah, Jesus died? Let me throw another log on the fire. Yes, there is. So there's this Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, uh, first century, born sometime in the 50s, and he despised Christianity. But he wrote about Jesus in a disparaging way. 
in the context of talking about, this is a little bit of history trivia for you, the emperor Nero set fire to Rome and then blamed the Christians and then strung them up and set them on fire. And he writes about it. Again, external witness. He writes this to quote him, and you could go look this up. Consequently, to get rid of a report, Nero fastened the guilt that he's shifting the blame. He's blaming somebody who's the scapegoat. And inflicted the most exquisite tortures on the class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Crestus, it's referring to Christ, Crestus, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Talking about the death of Jesus. And most mischievous, uh, uh, a most mischievous superstition. That's how he th- thinks of Christianity as a most mischievous superstition. So he was not a Christ follower. Thus checked for a moment, that is when Jesus died, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center be- and became popular. It's like... We thought we stopped it with the death of, of Christ, but now it's springing up all over the place, including Rome. All this to say, church, is that Luke wants us to understand that we are talking about actual, historical, validatable events. Christ lived, he died, and he rose again. In other words, we as Christians do not take a leap of faith in what we believe. It is not irrational, it is not unhistorical, it is not unreasonable. The evidence itself points in the direction of this is true, it is real. We believe in an event that actually happened. And if that's the case, if it actually happened, then it's a game changer. We can't say or adopt the position, which many do, well, you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe because all beliefs are on the same plane. It's like, wait a second. The Christian's like backs up and says, wait a second. This actually happened. Like, this is an actual event in actual time-space history. And if it actually happened, then I'm sorry, belief in Jesus and belief in the Easter Bunny are not on the same plane. Our, 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 our faith, our, what we believe in, it rests in actual fact. It rests in actual history. It rests in an actual event happening. Which means we have a reason for our belief. We have reasons for our belief. Now, let me answer a question. Does that mean that a person can come to saving faith in Jesus based upon the evidence without the work of the Holy Spirit or a work of grace helping them? And I believe the answer to that question is no. The answer to that question is no. But here's the thing. It's not due to the fault of the evidence. It's due to the fault of the twisted, pride-filled human heart. Big difference. The evidence is there. But the the pride-filled, sin-twisted human heart 
despises claims of absolute authority and submitting to someone called God as he defines himself. Rather, the heart of the fallen human being wants to redefine the world to its own liking, to its own desires, so people can live in a way that's right in their own eyes. For that very reason, they reject the obvious evidence, both in creation and history. I mean, that's, that's Romans 1, 1, I think, 19 and following, right? Paul writes, listen, the fact that there's a God is plain. He's made it plain to everybody. All you do is go outside and look at the flowers and the stars, and you realize there is one a God. There's a God who's powerful, who has eternal existence and is wise. It's all around you. But instead, men choose to believe a lie instead of the truth and exchange the glory of the Almighty Creator for something that's reduced, that they can manage and control with their own heads. And then they create this lie that's nothing more than a complexity of insanity as to how the universe started by denying the evidence all around them. That's, that's, that's Romans 1.1. It's, it's right there. You look at a rose. And if the heart wasn't sinful, wasn't twisted and prideful, you'd go, wow, look what someone made. That's awesome. Look at that baby. It's just perfect, and everything's working. And it's like, look, someone made that. That's, that's, where, you, that's the, where the evidence will lead you. But instead, the human heart. It's not a problem with the evidence. It's a problem with the heart. Same thing with the Gospels. They are historical documents, a number of them. And then there's all the letters that refer to it after that. And then there's the, the birth of the church, which is really unexplainable if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And you realize there's, there's verifiable reasons why we believe what we believe. It's rooted in history. You know, it was C.S. Lewis that said, he said, I, well, I've got to roughly paraphrase this, um, that he was dragged into the kingdom by his intellect. An atheist dragged into the kingdom. And then let me just clarify that it was the Spirit of God that dragged him into the kingdom. Because that's when, 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 when there's that moment when the Spirit of God opens the heart so that you can see the evidence for what it is and believe, then there's that sense of, well, of course. Of course, right there. It's been there the whole time. I just couldn't see it. All of a sudden, now this evidence speaks for itself. Now the cross is real. Now the resurrection is real. And all life is altered. So, that is the reliability. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but you do not take a blind leap of faith. There's reasons for your faith. That the Spirit allowed you to see in a work of grace. And then the purpose of Luke. That is to give certainty to our faith. That's verse 4. He's laid out the subject, if you will. He's laid out that this is reliable. He's done the homework. He's done the research. And now we can read Luke and know, wow, this is actually what happened. But he writes, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may be certain, convinced, persuaded of its truth. That word certainty um, literally means to lock something down. To make it utterly secure. Or in figurative language, to be certain of something, to be free of doubt of something. And the reason Luke wrote what he wrote is so that we, reading 2,000 years later, by the work of the Spirit, could have greater levels of certainty that this is true. The story of Jesus is not a a figment of fiction. It is not an exaggeration of history. 
It is an accurate account of what God has actually done in real space-time. It happened, and he presents it as a fact for us to believe, not just a subjective opinion to buy into. It's real, and it can be trusted. Now, I have reflected on, on this in, in my own life and in the context in which we live. I recognize that we live in a skeptical culture, inconsistently skeptical culture. And it's easy for that same amount of skepticism, doubt, and uncertainty to seep right into the church, right through the walls, right through our heads, right through our minds, into our hearts, And then to kind of pull back and say, yeah, well, this is my subjective opinion that this is true. And we lose the sense of of concrete, convinced, persuaded, no, this is not my subjective opinion that it's true. This is true because it's historical. When, when, when we allow skepticism to seep into our hearts and minds, you know, it, it takes away our passion, it takes away our courage, it takes away everything that, 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 that is fundamentally Christian, our joy, our peace, because we don't really believe it anymore. Now, how many of us maybe here are, are really not certain? And I would say this, that, that the evidence of how you live really is the better marker or the tangible way to know, do I really believe something? Listen, the truth is, if we believe this, if, if, if the Spirit of God will work through the Gospel of Luke to increase the certainty level of our faith that this is real, it will change life. We can believe that we are no longer under God's frown of condemnation. Why? Because Jesus actually died for our sin. He actually said it is finished. He actually sacrificed himself. It wasn't a subjective opinion. That we, if we are certain that this record is true, that the records are true, based upon eyewitness accounts, then we, like this morning, should be able to stand in the freedom of perfect forgiveness. Why? Because he really did die. It happened. It is a historical fact. This morning, we don't have to live in the fear of our decaying bodies and death. We don't have to mourn over those who have died before us as unbelievers mourn. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. It really happened. It's it's an event that guarantees our resurrection. There's no skepticism about it. That if believed, like this is true, our champion really did die, and our champion really did rise again, then we as his believers can have the courage to assault the walls of hell or the gates of hell without fear. Why? Because the victory has already been granted because it really happened. Do you you see how if 
And this is, this is really, like verse 4, that's, that's, that's my prayer for my life. That's my prayer for, for us. To have greater certainty of its truth. Without allowing all that skeptical garbage. You used a lot of words right in that moment. <laughs> Seeping in and causing us to question what has been laid out for us in history. So listen, as we come to the table this morning, I want you to be thinking, you know what? This actually happened. This bread, which is his body, and this cup, which is his blood, signifying a real death of a perfect man in my place to give me forgiveness and the rising again so that I don't have to fear death. As you hold him, ask yourself the question, do I, do I believe this? And if not, ask the Lord to grant you greater levels of certainty so that those fruits of courage and passion and love and joy begin to, to flourish in our lives from this singular root of belief in something that actually happened. So as you hold that bread in the cup, this is, this is an event, a very real event that we could have, if we had lived back then, witnessed with our eyes and touched with our hands. It's real. Therefore, our faith is not groundless. If you're new with us and um, you don't know how we partake of the, uh, the communion or the Lord's Supper, um, after I pray, there will be communion servers up here and come forward when you are ready. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is obviously for his followers, for his family to remember that this is an event, the once for all event. And, um, and then we also have in the small dishes uh, up here, gluten-free bread for those who would like gluten-free bread. Um, I think, you know what else too, if I could have people who are committed to praying um, come up into the corners and if you want people to pray for you, maybe it's something as simple as like, you know, I'm having a hard time trusting God with dot, dot, dot. Uh, perfect response to this message about faith and certainty. Will, will you just take the time to be prayed for? It actually is a humbling but encouraging thing to be prayed for. So if you're one of those prayers, if I could ask you to do the corners and then come forward as the Lord leads. Um, let me pray. Gracious Father, we ask and we thank you. Just thank you for being um, the one who stormed onto the, the scene of human history to uh, deliver us. Um, unworthy, but you are so loving that you gave yourself mercifully and graciously to us. And so we ask that you would meet with us in this moment, intensify or increase our level of certainty in the ground of our faith, who is Jesus, crucified and risen again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I could have the last remaining, there we go, I think it's Ron.